0: And now, here's your host.
1: Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. On today's podcast, I wanted to talk to you about the Disney brand. Now, I had said during the pandemic that one of the things Disney did was to rely on their brand. They had to close their parks around the world. They had to essentially bleed money because they were paying some of their cast members for some period of time. They had to pay for the upkeep of all the buildings, to keep the lights on, all the things that would normally happen. And they traded on their brand in order to get revenue, in order to make sure that they weren't going completely in the red. So you know, they upped the Disney streaming, of course, but they also borrowed money. And the reason they were able to borrow money is because they're still a strong brand. And at that, at that point in time, they still had the hope for the future, So there was still an opportunity for them to make that money back and repay it and make everyone whole again. So in a sense, they really had the right idea. To trade on their brand was the right thing to do to stay afloat because there were so many things that could go wrong at that point. So what is Disney's brand? Well, if we look at their mission statement, their mission of the Walt Disney Company is to entertain inform, inspire people around the globe through the power of unparalleled storytelling reflecting on the iconic brand, creative minds, and innovative technologies that make ours a world of premier entertainment. See, even in their mission statement, they talk about their brand, right, the fact that they're so well recognized and everyone knows uh, what they are. So a little bit about the company history. It was founded by uh, Walt and Roy on October 16th, 1923. The company started out as a cartoon studio. And since then it's grown into a multinational mass media and entertainment company across multiple business segments. So when you think about what they are, you know, it's a global enterprise. They do entertainment from their studios to what they own and the streaming service that they do still do some animation through Pixar and other animation uh, things. And they have some other uh, pieces that they now own. You know, they own all of ABC, ESPN, Hulu, all of those things are theirs. And they have the, then of course, there's merchandise. The consumer products and interactive media um, is responsible for merchandising their intellectual property. They have a good knack for advertising in the way they do things. So when you think about them, you realize that that brand is all based on that stuff. And you think about what they say in their mission statement, that they're providing joy to people. That they create unique and memorable experiences that are fun for everyone from movies to theme parks. They have something for everyone. When they think about their vision, they say they want, they want to be one of the world's leading producers and providers of entertainment and information. They, they've created groundbreaking content that's been enjoyed all over by people all over the world. And when you think about their core values, it's to make everyone's dream come true. You better believe it. Never a customer, always a guest, all for one and one for all. Share the spotlight, dare to dare, practice, 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 and make your elephant fly and capture the magic with storyboards. That was actually something that Walt had said, or was attributed to Walt anyway, uh, to kind of build on that. And they've always they've always said that that was their core value. And one of the other interesting things, uh, when you think about brand management, one of the things that Disney has done really well is thinking about their own brand, right, and how they how they realize what they are. They always try to follow a strong tradition of innovation. They strive to have, follow a high standard of excellence, maintain high quality standards across all their categories, everything they do. They create positive and inclusive ideas about families, provide entertainment experiences for all generations to share, that every product, everything they do, tells a story, timeless and engaging stories to delight and inspire, that they, their entertainment is about hope, aspiration, and positive resolutions, that there's decency, in, that they honor and respect the trust that people place in them. It's about fun and laughing at our experiences and ourselves in 2004, Roy Disney summed up the benefits of the Disney brand. The Walt Disney Company is more than just a business. It's an authentic American icon, which is to say that over the years, it has become a stand for something real and meaningful and worthwhile to millions of people of all ages and backgrounds around the world. This is not something you can describe easily on a balance sheet, but it is tangible enough. Indeed, it is the foundation on which everything we have accomplished as a company, both artistically and financially, is based. I believe our mission has always been to be the bringers of joy, to be the affirmers of good in each of us, to be in subtle ways teachers, to speak, as Walt once put it, not to children, but to the children in each of us. We do this through great storytelling, by giving our guests a few hours in another world where their cares can momentarily be, be put aside, by creating memories that will remain with them forever. This is the core of what we've come to call Disney. Now, someone points out that, you know, they didn't define their brand in terms of amusement parks cartoons films or products they describe their brand in terms of the experience people get from disney it's no coincidence that park staff calls customers guests and refer to employee break areas as backstage walt disney once talked about how he creates his stories and he said that the story man must see clearly in his own mind how every piece of business in a story will be put he should feel every expression every reaction He should get far enough away from his story to take a second look at it, to see whether there is a dead phase, to see whether the personalities are going to be interesting and appealing to the audience. He should also try to see that things that his character are doing are of an interesting nature. Of course, the Walt Disney images, brand, and all the things they put out there, including Mickey and so forth, they're all known worldwide. Everyone knows their, their work. Over the years, Disney has worked to create a respectful and recognizable brand equity and image thanks to their success and company expansion. They've created the brand image based on their core values of brand essence and the promise emphasizing wholesome, kid-friendly, family-oriented fun. Even their logos, when you think about them, you know, the, the Walt Disney script that would be essentially Walt Disney's handwriting. It is recognizable and it is something that you always equate with Disney. Their slogans that they use at various places, the happiest place on earth. It's just, it's something that really does reflect what the brand is all about. Disney really does understand the four P's of marketing as well. Their product, place, promotion, and pricing that really make their products valuable, that people want them, that people aspire to have them. And so that's really important. And they really understand that in terms of putting their brand together. If you think about the way Disney runs their business, a couple of things that they do, they sell more to existing customers, always, expand their marketplace, do continuous promotion, track their business, and always improve or add to their existing products. That's what it all comes down to. This is how you build a successful brand. You always focus on your core business and figure out how to expand it. You try not to step outside of that. You're an entertainment giant. You have theme parks. Make them the theme parks. You, have, you bought into sports, so those are gonna be, that's going to be the sports entity. You have something that's uh, streaming and TV. Well, you're going to use that too, but that's going to be delivering content to people, right? But you keep those separate and distinct, yet they're all part of the brand. It's important to understand how that works. Something else I should talk about is the fact that over the years, there are a number of companies that wanted to partner and brand, co-brand with Disney in some way. Because they're defined in such a strong way, that all these companies have come forth over the years to actually want to uh, produce product or work with Disney in some way. Mickey Mouse was the first licensed character to appear on a cereal box when uh, General Foods printed him on a box of Toasties in the 1930s. But it's important to understand that Disney has to be careful with how they do the branding as well. When they co-brand or they let someone else use their license, Sometimes you have to be really careful because these these could get misused or misapplied or misrepresented in some ways. Over the years, Disney has probably turned down 10 times the number that they've approved. Think about, you know, all the the times in the 80s and 90s when they were distributing things through Happy Meals that were Disney branded, right? All those things that they did to really market themselves and promote themselves in that family-friendly way. And you will still see things with their logo on it occasionally. There's one thing that Disney really believes in as part of their corporate culture that really sells what their branding is and that's the word magic they're selling magic right they're selling something else they talk about pixie dust and other things that really equate to this magic and really do promote the brand itself so there's a marketing thing that they call the consumer brand equity pyramid and in that pyramid are these critical things so think about how disney relates in all of these things in your own mind salience you know, how, how salient, how relevant it is, right? Think about how relevant Disney is to you and what you understand performance, um, it, within their performance of what they do and how they get out there. Um, not necessarily in financial performance though, you know, that's part of it too. Is their brand always the same? Is it consistent? Do you always see the same things from them? Their image, what does their corporate image look like? And yes, I know it's been sort of dinged recently. Judgment. How do people judge Disney? How do they feel about it in some ways? Feelings. How do you feel about it? What do you, what do you, what do you personally think about? What what emotions does it bring up in you? And resonance. How does it? How does Disney and their brand resonate with you? For many of us, it's a historical thing. We we go back in our own history. We, for me personally, I was raised in Florida. I went to Disney as a youngster, and I've been going for fifty years. So it has a certain connection to me. And I'm passionate about it for a lot of reasons because of that. So there's an interesting thing that came out recently. It was from a, uh, an agency called uh, MBLM, and uh, they did a study on brand intimacy, or they've been doing a study on brand intimacy for several years now. And in that study on brand intimacy, they look at some of the brands that are the most recognizable and the most beloved using those categories that we talked about. They interview people, they talk to them, they, they want to know in a survey what do people think about them? How do they connect with it? And since 2019, just before the pandemic started, through today, guess who's at the top of their list as the most iconic brand, the one that really uh, is that has the most intimacy, which resonates the most with people? That would be the Disney company. You know, they beat out Tesla, Apple, Sony, YouTube, for that matter. Other companies that are out there that people recognize, but Disney ranks the first among them. And that's what's really interesting about the whole thing is that when you look at the, when you look at what they do, you know, sort of how they fit in to everything that you know, You they have a, you know, they, they score them based on, you know, the fulfillment, the indulgence, how it, the identity, nostalgia, the ritual of it, and the enhancement. They kind of did questions all around that to understand what people would think, what people think about them. They also looked at, what um, people say about it in the social media space. You know, how does this come up? What do people say about it on the web? And there were 14 billion words analyzed and 600 brands compared through AI, you know, basically going through a systematic uh, look at each of them. And they found that Disney ranked the top there, too. But things associated with Disney were the fo- most frequently found things among all of that content, which just goes to show you that their brand is powerful. And that's what really makes Disney interesting is that they have a brand. They're able to trade on that brand. They're able to market that brand and they're able to make a brand that really does sell. And that's the really cool part about it. So there you go. I just wanted to talk about Disney's brand because it is iconic and they have something that's unique. That they can really market that, sell it, and understand what it is, and that's why we all love Disney. And you know, when I talk about Disney, or you you uh, contact me about Disney, or you're listening to this podcast for that matter, would suggest that you're really fascinated by Disney and you really you love it in some way too. And there you go. That's uh, that's kind of the story of Disney's brand.
0: One little spark of inspiration is at the heart <laughs> of all creation. Right at the start of everything that's
1: new, One Little Spark lights up for you. For my One Little Spark segment today, I wanted to read to you from an article called Nothing Beautiful Survives the Culture War. It's from The Atlantic Magazine, and it's from May 8, 2022. Its subtitle is Parenthood Itself Seems Poised to Become a Victim of America's Toxic Politics by Elizabeth Brewing. America is a much harder place to be a child than it has any excuse to be, and a much harder place to have and raise a child than it has any possible reason to be. It's hard to find a politician who will disagree with either proposition, and harder yet to find one with any intention of doing anything about it. When it comes to the crucial business of caring for our children and our families, our country is an international embarrassment. American children suffer in ways children living in countries of comparable wealth and development do not more kids live in relative poverty, more babies die, more grade schoolers routinely miss meals, and American parents, particularly American mothers, suffer too in ways that our international counterparts do not. Our maternal mortality rates are much higher. Our options for taking leave to give birth and recover from it are far more limited. Our resources for support are radically circumscribed. Our birth rate is as low as it's ever been, and a rising share of childless young adults in the United States now report that they do not ever plan to have children. This is devastation. This is loss. This is what it looks like to be a halfway failed state. It also happens to be the social and political context into which the draft Supreme Court opinion in Dobbs versus Jackson women's healthcare leaked on Monday night, and it was the first thing that occurred to me when I saw the news. No, I wasn't thrilled with the draft decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, though because I've confessed my own moral reservations about abortion over the years, many on both the right and the left seem to expect me to be. I am, among my lefty and liberal friends, perhaps the rightest kind of wrong person or so I like to console myself, I am, in other words, one of those old-fashioned, unreconstructed Catholic worker types, a pro-life person who is also, in fact, mainly concerned with capital punishment, war, and promoting uh, Nordically generous welfare programs. What I mean to say is that, in my mind, everything I believe in braids together in a vision of the world, suffused with super abundant creativity, celebration in life, and I suspect that we can inch closer to that place through a politics of equality, justice, and love. And so I take no pleasure in anyone's misery, and I don't sneer, God, if anyone has no place in it, it's me, and I won't endorse any politics other than a program of radical relief for American children. But where is the lobby for the children, and who stands to benefit by making a fuss about the fact that they're generally granted few rights in our society? Kids don't vote or donate to campaigns, and concerned parents tend to be worried about their own children, not the interests of children as disenfranchised and mostly helpless helpless group of people. There really is no political force for them, though almost every party claims to champion their interests at one time or another. But consider how remarkably different politicians actually are to the seemingly low-hanging fruit. Recently. Congress had an opportunity to make permanent the expanded child tax credit that the Biden administration instituted during the pandemic, but chose not to. The campaign against it was led by Republicans, including Senator Marco Rubio, Senator Mike Lee, and the policy analyst Orrin Cass, family values men all. Each argued, in essence, that making sure poor parents are working hard is more important than making sure poor children are wearing shoes. Democrats, meanwhile, remained hamstrung as ever by their own right flank, and despite having narrow narrow majorities in both houses of Congress and a sitting president, were unable to save the child tax credit, landing millions of American kids back in poverty. Politicians, whatever they say about their values and their beliefs, care mainly about power and money. Believe it until you see them do or say something that could really cost them. Can you read Joe Manchin? You'll be waiting a long time. Much of the meaningless hardship inflicted on American children in particular seems to pass without notice. Even the government agencies designated to protect the rights of this most vulnerable group sometimes fail to do so at all. To wit, last Monday evening I caught up with a friend of mine who works in the Connecticut-based Juvenile Court Diversion Program. Work had been relentless for her as of late thanks to the chaos brought by the sudden rollback of the COVID-19 era support measures and allowances. But one particular child situation haunted her. A teenage girl had just been subjected to a vicious stream of threats, locked out of the house by her father, and forced to sleep outdoors. Now she was living couch to couch and struggling to keep up at school. When my friend had called to report the matter to the Department of Children and Family, she told me the agency declined to take the case, reasoning that because the teenager had temporarily found friends to stay with, she was, for the moment, safe. DCF was overwhelmed and understaffed before the pandemic. It's hard to imagine the conditions have improved since. The girl was on my mind as I watched temporarily disenfranchised Republicans celebrate a victory not quite consummated while Democrats in possession of a unified federal government brooded gloomily over their regular bench of defectors and knew there was nothing they could do. On social media, people were livid, outraged, distraught. This seemed to apply across the board, even for those who had good reason to view themselves as victors. After all, this is the culture war. Each victory is just the opening volley in some grander, crueler theater. Somehow in the great right-led campaign to establish what the Catholic Church has for some time called a culture of life in this country, the United States has become a a canticle for Leibowitz-esque study in fundamental things coming undone. Politics is downstream of culture, and this is perhaps the greatest defeat of all. Having and raising children itself now seems poised to become a culture war issue daily losing its discursive resemblance to an ordinary life event and gaining all the markers of personal consumption choice that makes a statement about who you are and which side you're on. The GOP seems all too happy to nudge the process along with caricatures of childless libs and the specter of armies of groomers, broadly labeling scores of left-wing educators, activists, and parents as pedophiles. The fact that Republicans are up 2 to 1 versus Democrats among households with kids in Marist's latest pre-midterm survey Suggest they're enjoying some success on the push to become the party of parents, and so it goes. What a terrible thing to witness, and how distant from anything like a victory. Nothing beautiful survives the culture war. Maybe parenthood, too. This one thing, this burdensome happiness, this mundane ecstasy, will soon be another concept so thoroughly stretched and controlled by the requirements of America's longest war that people who could have found satisfaction in it, will hesitate to. And people who might have sought it will decline to. Maybe a swing set peeking out over the backyard fence will become a sure sign of a household's partisan allegiance as Blue Lives Matters flags or the lawn signs that begin with, in this house we believe, dot dot dot. And maybe children themselves will become so secondary to the matter of what their existence says about adults who bear them that legislating even for their basic welfare will become impossible. Maybe they already have. And that is my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there, please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading